Hello, welcome to Catalog and Cocktails. It's time for our season six finale. And we're coming to you live from Austin HQ of Data.World. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd product guy over at Data.World, joined by Juan Cicada. Hey, we're here figuring some stuff out right now with uh, our LinkedIn is being funky. So this is actually the first time in 160 episodes. I don't know that something's going wrong. Yeah. So yeah, usually LinkedIn is a reliable connection. Yeah, so I'm but, like uh... telling people uh, <laughs> LinkedIn is being weird. Uh, join, find join us, us on Twitter and YouTube, right? YouTube, if you want here. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, but always the show must go on here. We go. <laughs> anyways <laughs> this is weird anyways okay so so what it's are we been doing? it's been quite the season it has been huh? so much we've had a, some amazing so guests uh across a lot of different topics and so we'll be uh, uh talking through some of the big takeaways today but also we we drank a lot of great cocktails so I'm really excited. Um, uh, I'm going to shout out for a friend who you met recently here in Austin, mm-hmm. uh, Omid. He we were we were just having drinks on a Friday. We go to our my favorite brewery, which is mm-hmm. next door to my house, and he was talking about he makes this Earl Grey tea infused uh, gin, and he gave me a bottle of it, and this is really damn good. Yeah, uh, and I'm kind of mixed up like a sort of an old fashioned type of uh, thing, agave syrup with some bitters on this. Uh, Cheers. This. Cheers. Yeah. this is a very strong, potent drink for a very yeah. long year that we've had, which has been crazy. And it's, last six it's been crazy. This. And uh, this is a, this is a great cocktail. You get a really strong tea flavor to yeah, it. Yeah, okay. yeah, and a sweetness too. I was saying that this is uh, a bit like um like a Long Island iced tea type of drink. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for the folks. Yeah, I think it's a bad thing. <laughs> Juan, Juan was like, Tim, I'm going to make you a cocktail. It's kind of like a fancy Long Island iced tea. No, I'm like, but, oh. I'm, I'm enjoying the, it's, no, it's, it's really strong. good. It's strong. All right. So, so much to go do. So much to talk about. Uh, kick us off. Yeah. So the, the, we're going to talk about four main kind of categories of topics today that have been themes across season six. So there was a uh, business value, kind of getting business value out of your data and connecting to the business. There was uh, data fluency and culture, which we'll unpack a little bit more, technical aspects around data, and then AI. Everything's about AI, right? And so yep. we'll, we'll, we're going to keep you on the edges of your seats, and we're going to talk about AI last. So let's start off with our favorite business value, because what's the point of everything that we're doing if it's not to try to create value for the business as, as data teams, as data organizations? And let's first talk about um, Ethan Aaron, who is the CEO of Portable. Uh, he came onto our show. By the way, Portable, super interesting company around data integration. Yep. Uh, and he also has really great LinkedIn posts. And I think, Juan, you first kind of ran into him at like some different events and things like that. But then you also saw his posts and you're like, oh, my God, like you were talking with him. Right. And you're like, we got to we got to talk about that stuff, but talk about it on the show. Uh, and so he came on, right? And one of the biggest things that we were talking about with him was especially around the lack of business value uh, by data teams and how there's so many things that we're focused on that are not the right things there. And we really got to change the way we focus and we prioritize our work. And I think one of the biggest things that we talked about on the show with him that was super valuable 
was sort of like this quadrant. And he's got a really great LinkedIn post on it too, but that quadrant where you've got on one axis, you've got value, sort of low value on one side and, and high value on the other. And on the other, you've got effort, like low effort, high effort. Um, and where you want to focus is obviously high value, low effort work. That's the low hanging fruit. Kind of seems obvious, but sometimes it isn't. But sometimes it isn't. And some of our data teams, some of you are doing a good job of this. Uh, some of us are not. And some mm -hmm. of us think we're doing a good job of it, but we're not. Yep. Um, so let's be honest with ourselves there and really ask our stakeholders what's valuable for them. And then there's this other quadrant too, which is high effort, high value. It's hard, right? And so you really got to be careful about the investments and the choices that you're making there. Like, let's say like if the data team wanted to take on finance. Finance is pretty important, but you might not want your data team to be focused on that right now. It's very hard. Uh, uh, and so it's better for the finance team to focus on it, right? So uh, a lot of people, um, uh, you know, wonder like, what what is, the, you know, the main point of the data team? Like, what's the right way to think about how the data team should be focused on? And he had a great set of four things that he said. He said, first of all, analytics, going to the executive, and they might say, hey, what's the top you know, top sales or what's the top things for this particular person and how it impacts the business, right? That's important. Automation of tasks, number two. Product, number three. And then number four, risk mitigation. And so I think that was really helpful. And then finally, the smartest people in data can identify two main things. One is uh, the levers that drive revenue. And the second is the levers that reduce cost. So think about the different data projects that you're working on, which ones are more around revenue and which ones are more around cost. And if you feel like it's not having a big impact on either, then it's probably stuff that is low value. Uh, the next person that we I want to bring up that we talked to was uh, Aaron Wilkerson. Uh, and Aaron Wilkerson is the Senior Manager of Data Strategy and Governance at Carhartt. Uh, and the episode that we had together was focused around going from the technical uh, and technical strategy to business data strategy. Uh, and that a lot, and we talked a lot about how a lot of data teams are focused more on a technical strategy of like, we need to adopt these technologies and do the stack in this way. And it'd be, it's very technical oriented versus really building out your roadmap and thinking in terms of the business. And uh, he asked a really important question, like are, as a data leader, you know, uh, are, do you have too technical a data strategy and therefore finding yourself having trouble connecting with the business? And he really said that um, a business data strategy is, so the salespeople may be talking about customers and how to get to them and doing customer journey mapping. And these are all things that are part of the business strategy. And a business data strategy is how is data going to help us get there? So... Think about your own corporate strategy. Think about the initiatives that are going on within your own organization. What are the things that are the most important? Those are the things that you should be aligning your data roadmap to. People need to talk about data the way that business talks about business in terms of the business. Man, a lot of these things are kind of seem obvious or common sense, but we have, we're talking about it, so it isn't. And I ho hopefully, I mean, yeah. th this has been the year of like business value. I think. Yes, and, and, I think that's been a big theme. I think even when we entered this year, it was like ROI and then and then business value. Um, one more thing that Aaron talked about in his episode, he talked about making sure you get a seat at the table and get buy-in. And so he said, like, you've got to figure out as a data leader how to become a trusted partner. 
you're being asked to be in the meeting because a critical decision needs to be made. Uh, if you're in the room and you're not providing value, you're going to get kicked out of the room. Uh, so don't just spend the whole time talking about, you know, servers or other things that, you know, people don't care about, um, why streaming is the bomb. Uh, how do you know this is working, right? There is word of mouth that starts to happen, right? So if you have this, wow, you know, our data team is so impactful. I love working with that, that team, you know, you know, you're having an impact. Um, and there's a difference between people coming to you with, I have the solution and I just need you to do it versus I have an outcome I desire and I need your partnership to solve it. That's a very important one because it talks about the difference between being operational, being strategic. And I, we, I mean, we need to be operational, but also if you're only operational, then you're just being like, yeah, mm -hmm. you just you just do things, right? Instead mm -hmm. of like, no, we need you to be part of this conversation. We cannot go forward and, and figure out how to make a decision to be the best in our company without you. Like that's the position right. you want to go be into. And I think one of the things that Aaron highlighted was another comment from another guest of ours. Joe, mm -hmm. Joe Reese was like, we've we've lived in this lost decade, right? We jumped into the era of big data, uh, and yeah, we focused on the technology for so much time. And yeah, the people yeah. made a lot of money and stuff around that. Salespeople made a bunch of money selling tech and selling services, but the value didn't come. We just lost, and we got used to that stuff. And like, that's it. M Game millions, over. Millions and millions of dollars were spent on Hadoop infrastructure. That where is where is it gone? Where has it gotten us? Right. So great session there with Aaron. Uh, one last thing with Aaron's session, I thought that was some good, honest, no BS that we hit at the end of our session is that we were talking about CDOs and how CDOs only on average will spend, you know, 18 to 24 months in their, of their tenure. Uh, and we said, we, we kind of came to the point where we're like, well, maybe we're hiring the wrong people to I, be CDO. Th th I think this is a, a trend that we're seeing is like no more CDOs who only have a technical background. Mm -hmm. Either CDOs are going to have business backgrounds or they're going to be technical people who, who can bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. But if you are a CDO that you only talk tech and come from the tech background, um, I guess you got to start packing. You, packing might your be in, you might be in trouble. You need you need to really you need focus to realize on learning the business. You need to realize this right now. Yeah, yeah. I think we're seeing that as a trend across uh, a lot of the industry mm -hmm. now is these CDOs that are coming in that may actually not have the you know, they're not a deep expert in the technology, but they understand the business. Deeply. And that's the most important because right. you can get your 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 collaborators, your deputies who will know the tech the tech for you. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, so next episode, Alexa Westlake, senior data analyst at Okta, also just in general a great data evangelist. Like, yeah. connect with her. She is awesome. So much energy, so much excitement and ideas around data, and in particular around how to drive outcomes over outputs as, as a data team. And so outputs are leading indicator of outcomes. We really need to focus on outcomes. If we aren't understanding the outcomes, what's really the point? Data has to help with customer success, with marketing, with whatever it is that makes your business tick and drive those results. And you have to create a culture of joint ownership around success. So data and business, the teams are working together. There's joint ownership over driving the results. She said that there are uh, three categories of sort of uh, uh, focus, right? One of them is around system improvement. Uh, this is kind of non-negotiable. You got to reduce load time, reduce costs. Uh, there's all these things that like you have to drive, which are core in order to make things more efficient. 
process automation, if we're doing those outputs correctly, we should see this getting impacted. And then people experiences. So you should see that, you know, you're driving better customer satisfaction, that you're decreasing churn. Like, how is it impacting the end consumer or the people ultimately? So I think that was very important. And those are the outcomes, right? There. And those are the outcomes. Yep, exactly. And um, we also talked a little bit about like tools and processes and methods to be able to drive able to drive alignment around outcomes in the organization and create better partnership between data uh, and the business. Uh, one of them was uh, around OKRs and how it should be uh, really important that the data team uh, help different teams around developing and managing and tracking their OKRs rather than just be a downstream consumer of what happens there. And uh, you really need to reverse engineer from the goal. Uh, it isn't rocket science to do that. Uh, the data team needs to be the best friend of automation metrics as well. Uh, another tool we talked about was creating a council to measure scale. Um, and you know that council can really help you to address the tech debt. It can help you to drive growth and innovation. If you're uh, a small company, maybe you have to take on some of that tech debt. And so there's an opportunity cost around that. But as you scale, you need to really address that. So, um, you know, building that council creates kind of a group of people that allows you to really look at the bigger picture and prioritize. Um, lastly, strong leaders. You need strong leaders in data and in the business who understand uh, data. Look for empathy. Look for self-awareness. Strong leaders are going to make you feel comfortable asking hard questions. That's another trend that we've seen. Empathy. Mm -hmm. Definitely empathy. Yep. Empathy has been big. Uh, all right. Last on business value. So we had Chris Tab, who is a founder of LEIT Leet Data um, over in the UK. He's on the mean data streets all over the all hashtag, over the world. Hashtag mean data streets, bringing it to the mean data streets, and uh, there we focused a lot around driving uh, driving value from data, uh, and in particular, sort of the honest no BS around business value from data. Now, what is your definition of business value? Right, and so he started with the definition of business value, and he had very specific words. I was surprised at how specific his words are. Evidence evidenceable positive impact on your company performance. So evidence or, you know, evidence driven, right? Positive impact on company performance. Yeah. And by the way, it's not, it's not always profit, right? Because mm -hmm. I mean, look, his, his example, look at Uber, like that wasn't their goal. Yeah. That. That's not how they were measuring. So not just value. company profit, like for Uber, it was all about growth. growth. It was right. take over the market as fast as possible. Yeah. Get in every city. So there's different, right? different, different, I mean, the way you define impact or uh, performance is different for every type of company. Exactly. Yep. Um, and uh, another thing that he brought up that was interesting around business value is depending on what mode you're in, you're going to value different things. So if you're in more of a fiscal mode, then business value is going to mean you're trying to save money on the budget. You're looking for more quick wins, low-hanging fruit. If you're more of an, in a growth mode as a company, then you don't necessarily have the luxury of waiting to see if things can organically grow and self uh, and self fund themselves. You got to get customers as fast as possible, or you want to get market coverage as fast as possible. Maybe you want to develop a competitive advantage as fast as possible. That's what business value means to you. Profit might actually be a bad thing to optimize for. You intentionally don't want to optimize for profit, right? 
And then finally, there's also a hybrid mode where maybe you're trying to extract some of the gains from the cost savings or some of the things that you're doing to then reinvest in innovation. And if you're in this mode, you need to create incremental value. You need to have a good story every quarter. So it becomes very time bound. And you really need to keep your stakeholders close on the journey because if they start to worry that it's not making progress, then you know it could start to switch back into fiscal mode. So I think these are some good things. Think about your own organization. What mode are you, what in? are you in? And maybe even depending on the initiative, you might have different things going on at the company, different modes going for different initiatives. Um, last thing for data products, we talked a little bit about data products. Um, and he talked about the wrap, sell, improve model, which I think was kind of fun, right? Which is thinking about, okay, when you're trying to create value out of something, the process is, is that you need to think about the packaging of it. You need to really focus on how you're going to get people to want it uh, and then constantly be iterating and improving on it, right? And so uh, in order to do that, uh, you know, thinking about data products and thinking in that way, that's going to allow you to think about things more from the business perspective. Uh, take a product, make it stickier, make it more user friendly. So data products, I think, is another big theme that came up a lot uh, this year, you know, maybe last year it was more about data mesh this year, like the specific part around data products and then things like data contracts that has been much more of a focus. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that I really liked about Chris's uh, episode is that we started talking about this analogy with the legal space, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, Oh, you, they have to think about it, like making the case, just like uh, you make a case in the, in, in the legal scenario, you have a small case, right? Uh, you got to win over the CRO, the CMO, right? That's how you then you put the big case in, uh, forward and that big case, the judge is the CEO, and then mm. the jury right there is all the C-suite. So that was a great, that was a great analogy. But think about good it. analogy, yeah. Uh, I think later in the episode we go like, well, is everything supposed to be legal? Then I think we change into like an EV model and yeah. like like an electric vehicle. For, for those of you that are listening that have listened to episodes where we go real, real deep, deep into on an analogy, analogy, that was one. We went this really is a good one. Yeah, <laughs> check out the episode with Chris. <laughs> also, right. I mean, business value came up all over the place, but you know, specifically, kind of culture and data fluency came up. I know fluency is a topic that's very near and dear to your heart too so because it's not what, because it's not yeah. literacy because what i'm glad is that many people call bs on the word literacy because yeah. it's, it's disrespectful um so one of the so several things one uh we had a conversation with wendy turner williams uh, she was a former ceo at, at tableau and many other and it was at microsoft for a long time her stat 92 percent of businesses fail to scale data analytics and 95 percent of that 92 percent basically almost everybody, mm -hmm. blamed culture. And if you can't scale data in this new world of AI that we're in, how the heck are we going to go scale AI? Now, the reality is that most people don't even understand what data culture is. So how about high quality business decisions, decision data that aligns the strategy that the business is focused on and enabling people around that strategy? So for example, if you hear like, oh, here's a lead. Well, in, in a business like how does that travel through the business? Let's understand that flow. Like that is critical to the data culture. And that's around the, that's literally the knowledge around the business. Data culture is really business law knowledge. And literacy is not just about, oh, I'm going to learn SQL. It's really about learning the business, the business strategies and knowing how to ask those right questions. So part of also in, in thinking about the organization structure, there's no one size fits all, right? So you think about where does the CDAO or the CDO report to or the CIO and so forth. The CDAO should be the CEO's best friend because the CEO is the number one customer for data. Um, 
But what's interesting too is he highlights is like, look, software companies, especially big tech companies, they don't have CDOs. I know a lot of conversation people are like, the goal here is to kind of get to a stage in the company that you don't need CDOs anymore because mm -hmm. the data is already so over the place. So that's mm -hmm. an interesting point about it. Uh, be aware that data is political, right? And I think mm -hmm. we forgot to start talking about our, our t-shirts, right? I think that, that's a, that's another t-shirt uh, uh, phrase right there. Data is political. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking about how do we turn like data into a first class? Data maturity frameworks, things like the DCAM, like be able to understand these uh, models, uh, these maturity models, educate yourself. Understand the internal org structure, network. Who do you influence? Who gets it? Who doesn't? You want to be connected to those people. What are the values of your organization and how does data help to enable those values? How can data help others? Uh, find the fans, build a community internally, make data intuitive, shift data to the left. And at the end, another t-shirt is we're shifting from data talkers to data walkers. I love that. Well, I <laughs> Uh, another conversation we had was with Simone Steele. Uh, she gave a fantastic talk, I'll never forget, at the CDO IQ conference. And I invited her saying, I, please, can you give that talk here to everybody here at, data, uh, at, at, uh, at the podcast? So we talk about data sustainability. And sustainability isn't just about the natural resources, but it's also about those social aspects. So are we training professionals appropriately? Do we have enough of them? Is it sustainable to manage the business with all the legacy debt that we have and all the flaws that we have? Is it sustainable to keep consuming more? So she has this great diagram that she went over. She says that there's these two things that are happening. One, there's a development of tech and all the potential benefit it brings, right? So cloud computing, uh, generative AI and LLMs, right? These are all big inflection points. And then there's a second curve, which is also improving, but at much lower rate. And this is the actual and the real benefit that's coming from that technology. Mm -hmm. So, um, but we also know that there's like regulations and things that will start to flatten out these curves. The, the issue here is that things are not being designed correctly in corporations that we can keep up. The real value is not keeping up with the potential benefits. And that's that sustainability gap. And her position is that this is going to be the focus of the next generation of leaders. But this is going to take time because following the, the, plaques, the Planck principle, Science progresses one funeral at a time. Mm -hmm. So right now, everyone is so very short-term focused. This financial quarter, this might you just have to wait. And this is probably going to be a while. This goes back to our finding the balance between efficiency yeah. and resilience. I think that was a very interesting conversation with her because I kind of ended it feeling like we're in this for life. You know, it's it, there, this is an ongoing journey, and obviously we're making a lot of progress here, but uh, it made me really appreciate the long view on what we're trying to do around data and sustainability. And I wonder how much if we're going to see it uh, in our life. I mean, all the stuff that we complain yeah. and rant about, like when will we see in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Yeah. I mean, honest, no BS. It's going to take a couple of decades. Yeah. I wonder if I'll be retired or not. I feel that. like you keep on mentioning the Einstein quote, right? Keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Definition of insanity. Yeah. We're driving ourselves insane here. But. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So another conversation we had was with Doris Lee, who's now uh, who's uh, the founder of Ponder and now at Snowflake. So talking about data science and how that how that has been evolving. Uh, what is the definition? What are data scientists today? Like, I think for me, the definition that the summary of that podcast episode was 
the blurry lines. Like everything is getting blurred from people, from roles to tools. So the lines are getting blurred from business analysts and data scientists and machine learning engineers. I mean, now at banks, spreadsheet users, quants, are they're learning Python, right? And they're doing things for time series forecasting. Like everything's kind of blurred right there. Her point is like, everyone's gonna be a data scientist, no matter your role or title. Um, if you think about like the three categories, the data science capabilities go into low code, no code tools, auto ML tools, and then Python and notebooks. And even the, there's lines being blurred across those different categories that serve different personas. Uh, Python versus SQL, the lines are getting blurred there too, because you can use Python to query a database. You can use SQL to call script functions, right? Um, at the end, like this, this should really, really didn't shouldn't matter, right? The futures are there's APIs that are agnostic to what the data's backend is, and kind of dot 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 going forward, LLMs are the APIs for humans. That's mm -hmm. another good quote from Mike Dillinger. I think a t-shirt quote that we'll talk about. Um, and then finally, I like the, the open source landscape around this, right? One, I need to load in my data and transform it. That's what pandas are for. I need to compute statistics or machine learning models. We have SkyKit learn uh, all that stuff. And then third, I need to visualize things. And at the end, you have IEDs and development environments like Jupyter, uh, notebooks, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, one big takeaway that I liked out of Doris's chat is that like the idea of a data scientist is becoming very flexible. And it overall seems like a good thing yeah. because it means that it's a it's a big tent that a lot of people can come into. It's no longer this idea that you're like a big data machine learning type person. You know, they can come in many different flavors. Agreed, agreed. So then we had another conversation with uh, Kristen Kim, who is at Post Holdings. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was all about the power of collaboration. This was full of uh, T-shirt quotes. I got mm -hmm. that one, right? Yes. So one of the things is like the real, the real, it's, the power of collaboration, it's really the undervalued value that matters. So her, her point is like, if you're implementing a data catalog, you end up with a treasure trove of just so many different use cases that you can stumble ideas, you can amplify other people's ideas. Like you can, like, there's just so much stuff that you can go do that serendipity that's hard to put the value on, but that is actually the true value. So when we talk, when we, people talk about value, her quote is the what, the why, and the wow. And her big rant there is like, you just go sideways when you start talking about the how. Oh, people get into like the canonical models, the taxonomies, the lineage. Like, she's like, no one really gives a fuck about that stuff mm -hmm. at the end of the day. It's a how. Give me the what, the why, and the how. And the wow. The, the wow, the wow, wow, wow. Sorry, I see. No, <laughs> Not the how. how. Yeah. Later on, later on, I, I, like she says, back to the what, the why, and the how. And then you can talk about the how. Yeah. She says, like, we need to become storytellers. Uh, make it relatable, have analogies. I heard analogies like data is an ingredient. The catalog is a grocery store. You get a piece of data ingredient. You mix it up. You create a forecast. Like the catalog is like your cookbook and you re your recipes live in there. And another one, she's like, you have to be like Paris Hilton. I don't get out of bed for less than a million dollars. So focus on the stuff that makes a difference. That mm -hmm. is the wow. That connects back to Ethan and, and some of the business value stuff. Exactly. I mean, this is all getting, this is mm -hmm. all connected here. Another good point to think about, the Levi Strauss model. He didn't go to mine for gold himself. He put the tools and the genes in hands of people that wanted to go the mine who wanted to go mine the gold. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we gotta kind of influence the influencers in a way, right? That's how we yeah. want to go find ways to scale. Another good quote: "Don't be the data scientist that gets lost walking in their random forest. <laughs> um, you either win or you learn." 
another great quote from Kristen. And uh, what Gertrude's call uh, change management, right? It's a paying attention, and it's all about the people part. Uh, fail fast, but not too big. Uh, and yeah, project management is hard. Uh, <laughs> it's an art and a skill. Um, don't overdo it. Yeah, Chris, Kristen was a great, uh, great guest at a great episode. She has very professional irreverence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that episode we were in Orlando, so I was like uh, outside of our, outside at the at the pool, and uh, yeah. you were in you were in London, I think. Yeah, I think I was in London. You guys were in Vegas. Yeah, what a weird, uh, weird thing. But All right, and then awesome. and then another thing that's coming up is data storytelling. We're super excited. We had the chat to the chance to chat with Kat Greenbrook, who just released her book on data storytelling. What is it? How do we effectively communicate our data insights? And this actually starts becoming an issue when you're as as organizations start to mature. Why? Because you have so many dashboards because they're so easy to create. So you really need to understand your audience. So if you're presenting a dashboard to folks who have no idea, they need a story. Presenting an ex you're presented to an expert, they probably don't need a story. And uh, there are three reasons why you need to create data visuals, to discover, to inform, and to educate. But be careful about, another t-shirt quote, the chart vomit. <laughs> um, what are anti-patterns of data storytelling? Thinking that a dashboard is a data story. Really, the data story is something you should be able to go write. You need to be able to write it down, understand it before you can communicate it. Um, and then telling, telling the story is really focusing on the impact. You tell a story so you can have an impact on the business. So what are the products that are working on? What are the goal? How are you going to impact that goal? And another great quote that I love, what is the goal above your goal? Mm. Uh, and something that we love, how do you tell a good story? The three act structure, right? From Greek theaters, the and, the but, and the therefore. Uh, so he's like, and, 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 but, mm -hmm. therefore you have to do something, right? So it, if you're doing and, 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 that's chart vomit. That's chart vomit, right? People <laughs> get struck because, yeah, it's an agreement. Yeah, I shake my head, and, and, and. But is that contrast that, that gets me into that next play, that next act of what I need to go do. Therefore, I need to go do this. Mm -hmm. So I think these are all so much different aspects about, like we talk about data storytelling, right? The collaboration, uh, how the people, the roles are all being blurred. Uh, thinking about sustainability and, and, and just about how to turn data as your first class. And, and these are all the aspects of culture that, that organizations start thinking about. So again, it's people, process, technology, and this is all about the people in the process aspect. Yep. Yeah. I especially enjoyed the end of that episode when we did a lot of the like, uh, and but therefore experimentation yeah. and, and it makes you realize that a story is embedded in almost everything and what we're trying to do in navigating these data politics to connect the back to that is we're trying to tell a story that people believe and want to and see creates value so even think about in your own work like uh you know uh we know we had the best sales quarter ever and our marketing team is awesome but the pipeline is not looking very good. Therefore, we need to make sure we focus on marketing, right? Everything is a story, and this data storytelling is what's going to make you really successful. All right. Now let's dive into some more tech stuff. Now let's get nerdy. I mean, this has is, this is, this is still been nerdy. Well, that was business nerdy. Now we're going to get, I don't know, what's this, what is this kind of nerdy? Tech nerdy? I guess. Uh, all right. So uh, technical aspects around data. So first... Joe Reese. Is it Reese? Rice. Reese. Reese. Joe Reese. I think so, right, yeah. Joe? <laughs> Joe, correct us if we're wrong. We've been saying it wrong too many, too many times then. He is the uh, the CEO of uh, Ternary Data. 
um, instructor at deeplearning.ai, and also wrote the book, The Fundamentals of Data Engineering. Great book. Make sure you check it out. Um, it's more than just the nerding out. It's also best practices and really thinking about approaching data engineering in a smart way. And we focused our talk with him on Catalog and Cocktails around data modeling sort of lost art around yes. data modeling and how important it really is. And he highlighted that the art and the philosophy behind data modeling has been lost. And he stressed the need to really reconnect with these fundamentals in order to not just have a better data foundation in general and have cleaner data, quality data, but just to realize the, the AI potential. This is the AI ready data world, man. I mean, if, if you're not focusing on the semantics on the model of your data, yeah. you're going to live in crap and that stuff is not sustainable. You're going to fail. When I first met Juan, so Juan's company, Capsenta, was was acquired by Data.World, um, you had a couple of catchphrases, right? And one of them was the beautiful data. And the opposite of beautiful data was the shitty data. The shitty data. That was the. That was the <laughs> The friendlier version or not friendly version, the inscrutable <laughs> data it was inscrutable, right? Inscrutable. Uh, inscrutable. And I always think about that word inscrutable. And like, we want AI to come in and understand our enterprises and understand our lives and just become this magic pixie dust. But honestly, the metadata and the data that we have available for it to use is inscrutable. It is not beautiful. It is not modeled. And if we really want to capitalize on AI's potential, it has to become beautiful data. It has to be AI ready. So um, we're so used to seeing modeling as an exercise of capturing ad hoc queries and responding to ad hoc requests and not focusing on traditional conceptual modeling and then, and then logical modeling and then physical modeling. And it's not to say we have to swing the pendulum all the way back to let's spend two years arguing in front of a, a chalkboard or a whiteboard about, you know, what, what's the architecture going to be? And, you know, what's the, what's going to be you know, the snowflake edges versus the hubs and the, you know, like we, we've, we have to make sure that we do a balance <laughs> and that we stay agile, but we've become so focused on the tactical. Uh, what is the risk of thinking of not thinking, thinking enough of modeling, well, you're going to do dumb things more quickly and you won't know that you're failing. And then you just continue doing more dumb things and dumb things you've torn in than just driving yourself insane. Yep, exactly. So there's not one single way to do modeling, I think was another great takeaway from Joe, right? There can be these religious wars about, you know, should you do uh, Inman? Should you do uh, Kimball? Should you do this, this? Yeah. So uh, don't get caught up in the religion around that, right? They're good for different use cases. They, each one was optimized with something in mind. So think about how are you using the data pick the right mode for you. And perhaps it's even a little bit multimodal. The analogy is think mixed martial arts, right? Mm -hmm. He said, one martial art is not always the winner, right? It's the ones who know how to take the right skills from different parts of martial arts and combine them together. Those are the ones who tend to, to win the martial art competitions. 100%. This is something like I go through all the time and they're like, oh, we should do it this way. That was like, and then I catch myself being pedantic. I'm like, hold on, wait, wait, mm -hmm. we just there, there, we need to understand the use cases around this stuff and let's be very explicit about it. So this is a really important takeaway. Yeah. Think about the the, the trade-offs yeah. related to modeling, right? Time versus efficiency versus money versus quality versus rigor. Uh, get an answer out the door as fast as possible versus being more rigorous, right? Do the right thing, but don't over-index on just doing the fast thing. In data, you can mask over debt with another query. And that's, I think, one of the issues. I mean... We're seeing this more and more where you have a bunch of quote unquote models that you're creating modeling and then it's just a, a query over a query over a query and then it's just making a uh, 
big pile of shite. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Next, data contracts. That was a recent one with Andrew Jones. Yeah. So Andrew Jones, the guy who wrote the book on data contracts, go check out his book. Go check his posts out. Very interesting conversation. We started off with what is a data contract? It's an agreement between those who produce data and those who consume it. Simple, clear, right? Uh, there are then details, of course, to how that's actually communicated and enforced, right? It could be service level, level objectives, SLOs. It could be service level availability, SLAs. It could be owners, et cetera. Um, it lets you manage responsibilities around data and have expectations and dependability around it. It helps you to understand it. So data contracts are probably things that already exist in your organization. It's just a lot of it is implicit, is not explicit. It is kind of unknown. It is uh, a source of distrust and complication. Uh, we should get a little bit more concrete about these things. A data contract needs to be something that you can depend on. Anything that describes the data and sets expectations around the data um, is not necessarily a contract, I think is one of the things that we really came away with this from. Mm -hmm. So for example, a schema, a data schema, right? It has some contractual aspects to it, lowercase c, but it is not a data contract in the way that we think about data contracts. And that's because it alone does not guarantee anything because you can change the schema but if somebody says, we will never change the schema except with 30-day notice, um, and this is the way we're going to communicate about it, okay, now you've created a data contract around it. Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean? He talked about shifting left around responsibility. What does it mean to shift left around responsibility? It actually reminds me of an episode we had a while back uh, with uh, the gentleman from Indeed, one of the leaders uh, that was there, right? Um, or was an Intuit? Intuit. Intuit, yeah. Uh, and uh, we talked about shifting left. And there's a little bit of a software engineering mentality here, which I think was an interesting conclusion that we kind of came to at the end when we were thinking, okay, interesting. Data contracts have slightly different meaning in the context of text organ tech, tech organizations, software organizations, where it seems to have become more yeah. predominant. And now other industries are trying to figure out how they take the best ideas around data contracts, which might change the shape of it a little bit as you talk more just about a contract on a warehouse. When Andrew was talking about contracts, he was talking about like when you have software that is serving customers, it is creating data. Like the and the and the people who decide what data is captured is the engineer who wrote the code for that software. Yeah, th th this is something that we really that when you're having the conversation about things like data contracts mm -hmm. is like, you really need to understand the context of where those people are coming from. Right. Yeah. So if you are actually in control and writing the software, you're a tech company, like, yeah, the contract for you is different than no, I just consume data that comes from Salesforce. So I can't go tell sales. Like I can't, there's things that I can't control. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's something that we need to go. Yeah, you're an insurance time. company and you've got all these files that are coming in from different mm -hmm. places and they're messy and you have to massage them and like, but you can't, you can't tell them to change the file is, format. And this right? is probably one of the reasons yeah. why you see that big like tech companies don't have really CDOs mm -hmm. because it's like the data function, like the, the work of data is really embedded so much in just the culture of how engineering is being yeah. done. It's the product and engineering organization that owns the creation of the data. Exactly. Um, whereas most companies have to deal with the pain that comes with the data, how it comes. And so there's a, there's a different problem there. So super interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, 
where do well so what are not data contracts well it, it, it's uh, not data contracts is where you don't shift left far enough uh and also it's where it doesn't improve the data quality uh where do data contracts live well ideally the the truth is code data contract as code which is again a little bit of a software-centric view of the world, but even for the rest of us, right? So, you know, code can we encode it in something, right? Put it in GitHub, and how do you make it discoverable? Put it in your catalog. Make those data those data contracts discoverable via your catalog and connect it, make it related. How do you incentivize people to adopt data contracts? Every organization has some kind of a goal that they're trying to accomplish. Connect data contracts and providing higher quality data to that goal. We can't achieve that goal unless we have high quality data. And the only way we can have high quality data is if we have data contracts. That's your argument. Data contract doesn't have to be complicated. His book has just 15, uh, a 15 page chapter focused on the implementation of data contracts. That's and he really wants people to know this, like don't over-engineer it. Don't get over-complicated. It can be simple. It's a t-shirt right there. Data complex are not, data contracts are not that complicated. It's a short chapter in my book. Yeah, it's only 15 pages. <laughs> that uh, T-shirt's that, uh, going to have a lot of words on it. Uh, but it's still a great T-shirt. You should buy it. All right. Um, uh, data quality. Tom Redman, the data doc, came and talked with us. Um, and he is a guru around data quality. And his first and biggest observation was that the vast majority of data management is uh, by people without data in their titles. I love that. So it's marketing, it's ops, it's finance. This is actually a fun contrast to the Andrew uh, right conversation where there was a little bit more of a software angle to it. Now, so what Tom is basically saying is like, well, you know, Andrew, you know, he's dealing with the engineers that are creating the data, right? For most of us, who's creating the data? It's the marketing department that's creating the data. It's the ops department. It's the finance department. It's the sales department. Customer success and customer service. They're so the they're, ones creating they're the data. They're creating and they're the ones who are doing the interpretation. Doing like mm -hmm. ordering, and they understand moving, the semantics then, of the data. And they're, they're taking the data mm -hmm. from some other department, which they don't know how it is does. Like they're the ones who actually, all those spreadsheets that we yeah. can find, like they're being shifted around because of all the people who don't you have a title data they don't have yeah. the word data in their title. They're the ones who's doing that data work. And 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 one of the things that's driving us crazy, and I think Tom really unearthed a, a a golden truth here, is that we're driving ourselves crazy around data quality, and it's because there's a control problem here. These people, marketing people, ops people, finance, they're doing the work of confirming the data, but they're not trained in data quality or data management. They're just trying to do their job day after day. And so, you know, the second observation is that a, a data scientist cannot properly understand a business problem if they're, that they're working on unless they understand what's going on with the regular people, with these people that are just trying to do their job and make decisions around the, the business. The, the, the true data people who are doing the data work who don't have the word data in their title. Mm -hmm. That's that's Tom's that's exactly. A, uh, so if data, if we're going to address data quality, it needs to be bigger than just something the data people take care of. It's a company-wide initiative and probably a cultural change. Yes. Um, third observation from him, technical debt is out of control and all of this costs money, money, money. So what needs to change? Well, everyone in the org has roles today, but they aren't really conscious of those roles. Uh, they're not trained and supported in those roles. So 95% of the people that are doing data management are untrained without support. So it's no surprise that one third of our time is being spent on these issues. So this is the piece that we need to address. Bad data, is that a thing? Yes, 
but it can be nuanced in terms of, is that a, a, an address I can send stuff to? If no, it's bad data, right? So there's some, there's some interesting semantics and also some subjectivity to what quality is, but um, you can define it. Yeah, and what I, what I liked about that is that mm -hmm. you can you can you can there's a spectrum of like what's easy and hard. If you can go is if you can, if you ask is this good or bad, and there's a clear answer that says yeah this is good or bad, then then yeah that's an easy thing and and, and probably eighty percent is going to be like that, but the other twenty percent is like oh it's going to be so complicated. Then, yeah. Then then don't. Don't yeah. spend time on that philosophical part right now. Well, and and uh, one thing that I thought was fun about this conversation is that, uh, you know, Juan and I have some go-to sayings. And I know, Juan, you especially say this a lot, is that, like, we don't even know what customer means. And so, like, how are we supposed to do things if we don't know what customer means? And I think you brought that up in the episode of, like, well, what does customer even mean? And he was like, wait, hold on. Like, you're focusing on a hard problem. Like, that's a hard data quality problem. There, If there's 100 issues... Like yeah. 20 of them might be deep ontological issues, but 80 of them are actually low-hanging fruit. Yeah. So that, solve those 80 low-hanging fruit data quality problems first. That's that's so true. So I thought that was good. And then finally, he said, it is absurd that today people have to talk about business value. It's the 2020s, for God's sake. Oh, God. So, so true. <laughs> the future is here, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way. All right. <laughs> uh, last one on technical. Uh, Ari Kaplan, who is one of the data evangelists over at Databricks, came and talked to us about uh, the data lake and also about uh, data privacy and some different uh, interesting examples around data. Um, and uh, his background, actually, before he was at Databricks, was in sports analytics. Like, literally, he is the, the money ball guy. Yep. Uh, and uh, so we, uh, it was. He, he said it was remarkable. First of all, on sort of the data lake house side, right? It's remarkable that not everyone has heard about lake house, despite how us in the data industry we feel like we're so immersed. Like data lake house, oh, that's so 2017 oh, or something like that, right? Like a lot of people haven't, and so we have to remind ourselves to get out of our bubble. Oh, yeah, that's an important one. I, not the entire world knows what stuff like. I've had these conversations like, oh, stuff like he's like, snowflake. What is that? I mean, you don't know what stuff like, and then I remind myself. Yeah, Snowflake, data breaks, those things that we hear all the time. Uh, yeah, yep. everybody knows about that stuff. <laughs> There's a whole world out there, folks. It's not all just about the modern data stack, um, which is funny because then when we talked about the lake house, he's like, well, the lake house is the modern data stack. And I was like, <laughs> oh, we came full circle. But, um, <laughs> so, but you know, he's really talking about like the lake house is, is it, this is the modern way that you want to do data management because it allows you to bring two different paradigms together, which, you know, we, we, we had sort of this online paradigm and a very transactional paradigm. We, the pendulum swung to Hadoop and more of the unstructured paradigm. The lake house was the marrying of these two things together where you can have the structured data warehouse and the data lake together to bring together the structured and the unstructured. The best way to make predictions is when you use multimodal data structured and unstructured this is uh that's what we're seeing right now in, in the ai world so. and that's what you're seeing with the ai world people want to combine unstructured and structured data together in order to create better predictions and better better automation uh the lake house you can have it in one place it's a single also a single approach to governance which is important uh also knowledge is critical the model may recommend things but it doesn't know the context of your business this is the big thing which mm -hmm. is uh coming soon in our next section for the ai part exactly yeah. Um, and then we talked a little bit about sports uh, analytics, right? If a player is injury prone, so tell them to throw the ball softer. But this doesn't make sense. So, um, <laughs> that, you know, that's you, why the context is so the important. The context is so important, right? The data itself is not going to tell you everything. The context is critical. 
Um, you need people to collaborate, paint the picture. And he said, um, be vulnerable. Go talk to people. Yeah, th this is an episode which is it, it's actually hard to summarize because it's just go listen to it. But yeah, I, I, because you go into the whole history of how he got into it. And I don't want to I don't want to yeah. spoil people. Yeah, we won't like, spoil it. Like, go listen go to that episode. episode. If, you, if you enjoy sports, you enjoy history or you just enjoy data, which should be all of you. Check out that episode oh, if you haven't heard it. He tells some great stories about sort of his Moneyball past yeah. and, and experiences. All right, let's get into the AI part. Let's do it. All right, so I think AI was 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 all over the place, but I think specifically we had some really great episodes. One uh, with, with John Cook, I think th this was a combination of like business value, generative AI, and data products all together. And I loved how we asked him like, so uh, what is, uh, do you have a definition for data products or do you have a pedantic definition? And mm -hmm. I love how he says, yes, I do. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> he says, but the verb managing data products, that is what matters. And, and that's the data product management. Mm -hmm. And then, so think about data product and generative AI and LLMs, they come together. This is what I'm really excited right now. What we're seeing is like this whole notion of AI ready data is like, how do we build all these AI ready data products? Mm -hmm. One, we're going to see these co-pilots, right? I'm going to use LLMs to help me go create these data products themselves, right? Second, we're going to be using them for some sort of a classification kind of, and third, the LLM itself is going to become a data product. Like your chat with your data itself is going to become that product right there. Mm -hmm. And what we really need to start thinking is how to use LLMs in every step of that data product management life cycle. And I think this is something that we're starting to go see right now. Like I know I'm working on this in my day to day, like in the stuff that we're doing in our lab is like, okay, here are the steps that we go to solve this problem. Where do I put LLMs? How do I put this and how do I measure actually the benefit mm -hmm. from that? So that's what I'm really excited about. Um, so the question here is like, as data professionals, how do we start taking advantage of all these generative AI innovations uh, combining with data product management? So his advice is start to push on things, test and see how much you can push on this and see how folks are reacting. So you really need to be start talking to your folks, folks around you. Understand that very few people, very few companies actually nail software product management. So set your expectations correctly because you're probably not going to, you will definitely not nail this in the first time. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a while to figure it out. So give yourself a little grace. Yes, for sure. Uh, anyway, set the expectations, really, really important. And you have to develop a language to speak to that business value. Again, then we're all super excited about AI and all the cool things you need that we can do. We need to connect that all with the business value. Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, John, this is, you have to go, he was wearing a t-shirt t-shirt no. the, the great data race t-shirt which is like you start first with the business problem and then but if you start with the data first it's a dead end and you're done game over so then you go from the from the business from the business problem you go to the wilderness of the data sources and you hit the roundabout of the data modeling and then you go through this whole area of contracts as you're testing then you hit the production and then it continues to keep going to that iteration so i, I really love that you know, I, I love board games and I'm really hoping that like somebody will try to create like it's like life, except it's data life. It's it's this. It's the great data race. It's actually not a bad idea. We'll all play it one day. right? I'm sure that we'll have a market for that. I don't yeah. know how big, but I, I think, think there is a market. I think at least 10 people will buy it. Well, we have for this for the Spotify uh, uh, stats. Uh, I think there's 112 people who have us as their number one. That's true. Podcast. 112 so, people that were their number one podcast. Am, so first of all, thank you, too. all of <laughs> you. Some of you are probably listening right now. So we're talking to you. <laughs> I see you. Not Hopefully really. buy the board um, game that we're going to. Buy this board game. game. <laughs> yeah, we're going to stick it in our uh, in our, in our t-shirt store. In our imaginary t-shirt store. <laughs>
All right, one of my one of my episodes that I really episode that I really loved was having Mike Dillinger, who's a former lead at at, at like at eBay, at LinkedIn, working on knowledge graphs. Um, so we really discussed the relationship between LLMs about uh, RAG, the retrieval augmented generation, knowledge graphs, and vector databases. The one of the quotes for the T-shirt for our imaginary T-shirt store: mm-hmm. uh, the LLM is the API for humans. Um, and so thinking about like how do knowledge graphs and LLMs come together, it says knowledge graphs are great for reasoning and coherence. And LLMs, the large language models, are great for language. Mm-hmm. Um, knowledge graphs, these are the semantic layer. And I think this is a conversation in, our, in another episode that we had with, with Dean Alleman going, which we'll talk in a second, is, yeah, knowledge graph semantic layers is basically the same thing. Right? We have so much mm-hmm. marketing going around. But so vector databases, let's, how does this come in? So. First of all, databases are about pushing, focusing on the strings, right? You push strings in and you're trying to associate strings with strings, but this breaks down because you can say, hey, wine and cheese, those two things go together, but that doesn't mean that they're in the same food group, right? Doctors and nurses, those are related, but they're not, it's not it's synonyms to each other, right? So this is when things go break down. So there's some inherent limitations when you focus just on the strings. And this is where knowledge graphs come in because it provides that context that gives you and that distinguishes all these different things. And the knowledge graphs therefore bring you the accuracy, which is critical for any type of enterprise applications you want to go do. I think if you're creating applications that are not for the enterprise, yeah, this is fun. It's okay if we have mistakes or stuff. But for the enterprise, accuracy is critical. Explainability even more because it's going to provide trust. And at the end, you want governance around all of this. So what does the RAG architecture look like? And I, I like I like how he puts it up. Look, it's you you have a query, you have this background that goes through some software and it has the knowledge graph, the database. You're trying to get all this context out that, that is relevant to that question. You add it back to the prompt that sends it back to your large language model. You have all this context. But the honest no BS here is that that seems like a Band-Aid. And we were brainstorming during this episode of like, what does an architecture actually look like? And I think th- th- we're figuring this out, mm-hmm. right? I think 2024 will be the year of figuring out what these architectures look like. And I think we'll see two architecture. I mean, there, there's the architecture of how we can do things fast and kind of just quick and dirty, mm-hmm. the Band-Aid approach. But I think what we're going to start seeing is the enterprises realizing, wait, I cannot really put this out in production and use it within my company, using part of my product, if I don't understand how this is really going to go work. And what we are starting to go see is the knowledge graphs are going to be that intermediate layer of providing all that accuracy and explainability. Yeah. Um, Every company is going to try to build their own LLM or a set of LLMs that represent their knowledge and their capability, and they will all run into the same problem. And connecting this back to the episode with Joe was about the data modeling is that we really need to focus on the meaning of this data so we know that we can effectively use AI. Um, we are underutilizing knowledge graphs, and it's not just for rags. It's like we should be using knowledge graphs to help for the training in the first place. Um, other great quotes is, what are, the, what are we getting from knowledge graph is adult supervision and identific- the definition of hallucination, returning the best crap. 
I don't think that was my favorite part of that episode. A, yeah. Uh, so to wrap up on this, we had an episode with uh, my colleague Dean Alamang. Mm-hmm. Uh, so together with my other colleague Brian uh, Jacob, we, we we had an episode just sharing about our, our recent work on our benchmark that mm-hmm. we did, and that was comparing the usage of knowledge graphs when it comes to answering enterprise questions over enterprise databases. And one of the things that I think has always has been troubling. My, myself and many people is like, hey, we're making all these claims that, oh, we can go ask questions and chat with our data, but all this chatting with our data is over unstructured over the strings that are in vector databases. But what happens if you have your data in your SQL databases, in your lake houses and so forth? What's going to happen? And I think people acknowledge like, oh, wait, I, it works pretty cool and cute for small tables, easy questions, but how is this going to look like in the enterprise? So having that question in mind, we were like, like let's set up an experiment. And we come up with a framework where we're looking at enterprise schemas. Uh, in this case, it was about insurance using this open standard from OMG on insurance model, have a, a spectrum of enterprise questions, easy questions, the harder questions. So day-to-day analytics to more of the metrics and, strate- and strategy questions. And then also the spectrum of complexity on the schemas. Is it a couple of tables or I need nine, 10 tables to go answer these questions? And then have explicit all that context, all that metadata, all that semantics, all that knowledge. So we put all these things together and we ask all these questions with without a knowledge graph. So basically using a large language models, the question writing SQL directly and using the knowledge graph. And what we see is a 3x difference. So you have three times more accurate responses if you have a knowledge graph versus if you don't have a knowledge graph. So that was that really, really, really cool. And mm-hmm. to see how that work has made so much impact so quickly went really viral. And uh, it's just, it's really cool to how see. How many uh, views was it? Well, I mean, I, I, I made my post and there's like 100,000 views and between that and Twitter and then just so many people contacting us and and, and, and folks like at DBT have already replicated, other startups are replicating this stuff. And, and, and so it's really, really cool to see how people are acknowledging that we need to invest in knowledge graphs to have improved the accuracy of LLMs. Therefore, the takeaway, we need to invest in knowledge graphs. We need them to treat semantics, metadata, modeling not as first-class citizens. Um, and, and, and that was that was a lot. That was everything we've gone through. And maybe to bring it all uh, full circle, right? Like, it seems like common sense because it is. But now we need to do it. That's kind of Let's a theme across it. everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're, to, to wrap up here quickly, uh, what, what we've done here is that we've... Uh, yeah, you uh, did something cool we, here, right? We, we took all... We didn't take the transcripts, as you all know. Uh, well, maybe you don't know, but Tim and I, when whenever we're talking to, with, uh, having the conversation of the podcast, uh, we're taking notes live. Uh, so when we provide the takeaways live, we've actually been writing them. Uh, so we, I took all those notes that we have of our takeaways, So and then I just fed them into GPT. So this so, is literally chat with the takeaways of the takeaways. Exactly. I have. So I have some questions here. So uh, we're going to probably share this uh, GPT with folks. So whoever has the chat GPT plus can be able to go access this. And you can ask questions like here, what are the takeaways for data practitioners? And they say, well, the highly relevant to the work is uh, fundamentals of data modeling for AI success, focus on data quality and people, align data work with business value, data as a strategic asset, uh, you can keep going around these things. And uh, what are takeaways for data leaders? Embrace core data modeling semantics, prioritize data quality and human factors, align data products with business values, and so forth. So this is uh, it's pretty cool that we're going to start doing this and kind of yeah. feeding our transcripts and stuff to, to GPT so you can not, uh, well, I guess, 
please continue to listen to us. But if you don't listen to us, you can yeah. chat with us. Share <laughs> with us your takeaways because we want to see what your takeaways are of our takeaways of takeaways. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think about how to put another takeaway in that. But. Sorry, I had All to. Right. Tim, it was a pleasure. This Cheers. Is six seasons. This is year. I forgot. Four? We're on a year four. Yeah, year four. Um, we need to. Season six. How many episodes? 160, 70. Something uh, like that. I guess it depends on how you count. Yeah. Um, this has been so exciting. We can't wait to figure out what we're going to do next season. Uh, we're we're always trying to innovate, always trying to make this better. Tell us how you want this to evolve, how you want it to be better. Um, and we're just so thankful to, to Data.World for allowing this yes. to happen uh, and to you all for being an awesome uh, audience and community. Cheers, so, everybody. Cheers. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. See you all next year.